Canucks Central Monday. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah with you in the Kintech studio. This hour is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. We've got Frank Saravalli here on a Monday and extended pregame show coming up after Three o'clock as we get you ready for the Canucks and Devils. A four thirty puck drop from the Meadowlands at the Prudential Center, I believe it's still called, uh, between the Canucks and New Jersey Devils. It's not House Hughes. <laughs> it's not the House of Hughes. The Battle of the Brothers Hughes is coming up tonight. Yeah, and uh, one day it'll be three brothers playing. Yes, the the oh, Battle of the again. Three Brothers Hughes. With yes. Jack Hughes, Quinn Hughes, and Luke Hughes eventually uh, in this matchup. But for now, it's still just Jack and Quinn. We'll get into that matchup and more as uh, a new look Canucks team takes the ice without number 53 on the roster. He'll be getting his debut with the New York Islanders this coming uh, evening. And uh, in, a, in a few nights playing the Vancouver Canucks. So. Uh, not going to be too too long before you see Bo Horvat go up against his former team. We did get to see the one last dance though with him and uh, with Patterson and Bo. Oh, the last on ride. Saturday. Yeah, it was very fast and furious. It, it was the most. <laughs> it was the most highlight worthy event of the All Star Weekend. <laughs> Shows how well uh, All Star Weekend went for the NHL. Hey, hey. A- anyways, they tried. They tried. Did they? Well, they try different things. Uh, okay, let's not get into that again. I don't want to argue. You can hear my rant from Friday if you want on the podcast. Uh, all right. Elias Pettersson, though. Uh, we spoke to him last week here yeah. on the show and uh, was a good candid interview. Spoke about the captaincy. Spoke about his future in Vancouver. Lots of different things. But he did another interview, and uh, it was beachside yeah. in Florida with uh, Elliot Friedman and Jeff Merrick. And he goes into a lot of different things. Yeah, I, I thought, I know what everybody ultimately is looking at and thinking about from the Pedersen interview, but I actually thought that the one thing that stood out to me most was his talk about how poor defensively the team has been I mean, <laughs> and how right. that's the way that they have to fix everything. I mean, it's it's one of those things that Pedersen's a smart hockey player. Pedersen's a player who plays the right way. He's one of the few players on this team that consistently performs in the way you want a winning hockey player to perform in. So clearly he's aware of everything going on around him. And when he talks about those things, you also hear a lot of what Rick Tockett's been speaking about. So if you're looking at, okay, how is it going to fare with Elias Patterson and the new head coach? I know some people are worried that they think Tockett's going to take away Patterson's offense. I don't think so at all. I think, Mm -hmm. if anything, Pedersen's at his best when he's playing on both ends, and a lot of his offense is generated from a good defense and then creating transition chances. And that's music to Rick Tockett's ears. So I think in terms of the coach and Pedersen, I think there is a possibility here that they're very much going to be on the same page. This is, uh, like, Pedersen's not the problem, right? (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. And I, everybody knows that, including Elias Pettersson himself. So it's about figuring like, Don't look out. at me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, defensively, and, you know, he encapsulated it by saying, you know, it's, it's a defensive thing, right? As yeah. a team, more than anything else, we get stuck in our own end and those types of things. But it's obvious, like the way for this team to get better is to get better defensively because goal scoring hasn't been the issue for them at all this season and over the last couple of years it's ultimately always come down to how they play in their own end and the types of chances they give up on the rush and throughout the game and how poor their penalty kill has been but what everybody is honing in on sat uh the question about patterson and jt miller yeah and the relationship that those two share because there has been a lot of speculation that they aren't the best of friends, mm-hmm. we'll say. So Pedersen was asked about it on 32 Thoughts. Let's hear what he had to say. There's a lot of rumors about your relationship with JT Miller. Is it good or bad or what? How would you describe it? I want to hear it from you. Yeah, it's it's good. Uh, I mean, we had our differences maybe in some games, but, I mean, he's a teammate that I respect. And, um, yeah, he's someone I like to play hockey with and uh and yeah there's a lot of speculation obviously a lot but uh he's a teammate i respect this a teammate i respect we've had our differences but a teammate i respect ultimately and why is that interesting because there is some level of an admission that it's not always you know roses and sunshine between Elias Pettersson and JT Miller. Yeah, I don't, I don't think anybody's been under the illusion that they, they are best friends. And yep. th- the question's always been, just because we're not best friends doesn't mean that it, there's a toxic relationship going on between the two. And, and there is there a split and a dichotomy in the dressing room between those two players? That's such a big gulf that they'll never get be able to yes. uh, bridge that gap and be able to move forward as an organization as long as those two are on the same team. Everything that I've heard asking about the situation is that, yeah, I mean, there's been uneasy moments. Yeah, they're not best friends, but there isn't this this seething hatred that's going on. And one of the things I was kind of told laughing, you know, I mentioned this before, it's kind of like, I mean, I don't think JT cares who likes him who doesn't like him. He's like, <laughs> as long as you show up and play hockey, I think that's, that's the only thing that matters to him. I don't think yeah. he really cares in that regard. So from Pedersen's point, a lot of people have been projecting, wondering, how does Elias Pedersen feel? Like, does he hate this player? And given the answer that Patterson gave, and there's video of it as well, if you want to read between the lines, you can read anything you want between them. If you want to read between the lines, you can project anything you want in there. What I liked about it is that he didn't BS anybody. He said, yeah, I mean, there's been moments. But yeah, he's a teammate I respect and somebody I like being on the same team as. It's not what people think it is, was kind of the summation that Patterson gave. Now, a lot of people think the, the, the answer wasn't compelling enough or that you can read between the lines and he meant something else. Hey, man, people can do whatever they want, right? But I looked at it and I heard a guy who acknowledged that there has been friction, but suggested that that that's okay. Like, if you wanted to BS anybody, you could have easily BS people and said, "Oh no, I mean everything's fine. JT's yeah. cool. Like nothing, nothing's wrong." Like you could have, like if if you really wanted to BS, you could have easily BS. Yeah, you could have, you know, had your voice go up four octaves and just BS your way through it. Yeah, <laughs> but Pedersen's never been that guy, right? He's always pretty honest about everything that's going on with him and how he feels about certain situations. I appreciate that. We should all appreciate that. You don't have to like everybody at your office. No matter what job you work in, we say this all the time, you you don't have to like everybody that you work with, but you have to be able to work with them. 
and you have to be professional about yeah. working with them and finding a way to whatever it is you're doing, put the best product you can together. What it comes down to for me, looking at this entire situation and listening to Pedersen's answers and when we asked him as well last week about whether he wants to stay in Vancouver or not, and he says his focus is on now, but he loves Vancouver and everything. I think the determining factor is his trust with the organization. Dan. Yeah. Like, the JT stuff, sure. But I don't think that if he trusts that the organization has the right plan, believes that they know what they're doing and can make the right moves for this team to be a contender, sure. That, to me, is going to be the biggest determining factor here. How does he feel about how everything's gone on this year and previously? Does he believe they can win here? Does he believe uh, the tack they're taking is going to be successful? Those, to me, are the biggest questions about it. And I think the reason he doesn't want to commit more than anything isn't about, oh, can you find a way to trade JT? Because if, if they trade JT, I'm going to resign. Yeah. I think it's all about, like, what else are you guys going to do? And what's your plan for, to make this team a winner? Because that's what I want to see more than anything else. And that's ultimately what matters the most. Um, it, it, it's uh, Snoop the Dog with this text. What were you expecting, Peter, to say? I'm on Team Horvat. Management picked the wrong alpha. That's from uh, Snoop the Dog. You know, he, he did talk glowingly about Bo mm-hmm. Horvat and has uh, at every turn over the course of the weekend in the wake of the Bo Horvat trade. Uh, I wouldn't expect anything different, but ultimately this team wasn't winning with Horvat anyways. And the biggest thing to get Pedersen on board, as Sat just mentioned, is getting this team on a better track than what, than the one it's currently been on. Yeah, and a lot of it does come down to JT being a better hockey player, right? And being able to have, be successful playing down the middle. Because if he is, then it solves a lot of problems, right? If he can play center effectively, you traded a center, but you have two centers. Again, it's related to JT, but it's about, can, can this team win? Yes. Right? Can, can we find a way to win with this player and the plan that this organization has for the next couple of years? That's going to be the most compelling part about it. That's going to be the most decisive part about what happens here long-term with Pedersen. So we've dissected the Horvat trade from every which way possible. Tonight, you know, we get to see this team without Horvat, and JT is not moving to the wing anymore. Mm-hmm. There's no more excuses, Sat. Well, at least for this year. Yeah. Right? Like, you, who else you got? I mean, you know what the fascinating part of this is? They got no other centers here. No. Curtis Lazar, when Rick Tockett came in, he said, we got four great centers. We have uh, Miller, we have Pedersen, we have Horvat, we have Curtis Lazar. We, got, we have four great options down the middle. It took, it, took, <laughs> it, it took Tockett three games to realize Curtis Lazar is not a center. Yeah. Now he's on the wing already. Niels Allman comes up, and Sheldon Drys is back down the middle again. They got nobody. No. Like, it's got, the rest of the season is JT, and it's for you to figure out, can he play center under Rick Tockett? Because if he can, great. If not... Now you know what else you have on your to-do to do list. And I've always said they need another center no matter what. And Aturatu down the road perhaps. But even so, you still need somebody else as time goes on here to bring up another center. So they need one. The question is, how pressing is that need going to be? And it's dependent on how JT can play the rest of this year. The uh, This is the thing. Now JT has to show. You know, there there is no more excuses. You're not moving from line to line. Maybe your wingers will change on a night-to-night basis, but you know you're coming to the rink. You're getting ready to play big-time minutes through the middle of the ice, and you know the team is going to rely on you yeah. playing those big-time minutes through the middle of the ice, and you need to be more like JT of last year than you have been the JT of this year. The offense 
has to start coming back. If this team's going to rely on you and they're paying you eight million bucks a year, you've got to start producing again at a level commensurate with the contract that's going to kick in next season. All of these things do apply. And I've been higher on JT's game this year than most others have, but everybody knows he hasn't been good enough offensively at five on five and defensively he's had his issues as well this year. But those could be masked if we saw more of the JT that we saw last season. We haven't seen anything close to that. Yeah, and he and he doesn't have to be this two-way force, but can, do you produce enough offense for any defensive issues to be a bit of an afterthought? And that's yeah. going to be what he has to do more than anything else. And yeah, he can clean up defensively and be better defensively, but he's not all of a sudden going to turn in Patrice Bergeron. You know? like <laughs> yeah. he, he's, he's not going to all of a sudden become something he's not. But just obviously become a lot more tidy in your own end and bit more responsible things that he has worked on our biggest criticism for jt is the back checking it's the lackadaisical efforts at time but it's not like he's out of position often like he usually to your point you've been harping on this for a while like he's usually in the right spot he ends up being stationary but he's in the right spot you know but he's ended up being stationary it's that are you moving your feet enough with jt especially when he's not as engaged or when he gets frustrated like those things have to get cleaned up and line changes that we talked about and he shuts down when he makes a mistake yeah i mean you can't have that yeah you know you can't like you just and i think talk it called him out a bit on it last time he did it and he demoted him to start the next game to the fourth line and quickly moved back in but I think Rick sent him a bit of a message. Talkett yeah. sent him a bit of a message about that. It was the second game against Seattle and said, hey, we're not going to have that. Yeah. You know, and if that happens again, it'll be more than just starting the game on the fourth line. Uh, this from Gordy Locke. To be fair to JT Miller, would you give Pedersen the hard matchups, then use JT like the Sedins, put him in favorable offensive situations? I'm not against that idea because I know Pedersen can handle it. I don't know if that's what Talkett's looking to do. When he was asked about it, one thing he mentioned was he wants Pedersen in those prime offensive opportunities. Yeah, and he's like, he can. Yeah, there'll be times when you'll have to go head to head, but it's like if we need a if if all of a sudden there's an icing and the fourth line's out there, you best believe Pedersen's <laughs> line's getting that opportunity. Yeah, because there's a better chance that his line's going to take advantage of that than any other line. So. I think you still want to be flexible on it. You want to have options. You want to be able to roll three lines and not worry about who's going up against who defensively and that you can key in on certain matchups. You can only dictate the matchups at home anyways. I do think the matchup stuff to some degree is overrated. It's very situational depending on home or away. And when you are away, it comes down to really working your bench well, getting mm-hmm. ahead of things, trying to predict and getting a uh, sense of the rhythm the other team has and trying to line up your changes, a lot of changes on the fly. And you're, you're a lot more strategic with it, but you can't dictate as well as you want on the road. So I do think the overall matchup game at times gets overrated, but you certainly want to have somebody you're not afraid of having in any situation. And I'm just not sure they have that line yet with this team. It's a work in progress. And, and even when they had Bo, they didn't have that. Yeah. Bo got that role oftentimes, and this year went away from it, you know, to some extent, at least from the deployment aspect. But they, they used Bo in that situation because they didn't have anybody else. Yeah. You know, and, and in fairness to Bo, it's not like Bo asked to be this all situation, all around player. The Canucks used them like that because they had nobody else to use in that situation. And oftentimes, it didn't line up with his strengths. Uh, speaking of Bo Horvat, Sat, the man got paid. Did he ever? <laughs> uh, Sixty-eight million dollars. That's uh, twelve million sheets more than J.T. Miller. Massive. I mean, it's massive. It's a lot larger 
than any contract we think the Canucks offered to Bo Horvat. I mean, we don't know exactly what the last offer was, but my guess is, I mean, educated guess, we're talking about 13 to $15 million in total money difference from the Canucks' last offer to what he just got. Wow. I'd say actually 15 to 16. Yeah, so million. that's... 52, 53-ish total money? I'd say that's ballpark. I think yeah. ballpark was the Canucks offer was 50 to 53 million. Probably the best they got. And hey, if they knew that Bull was willing to play ball, would they have stretched it a bit farther? Would they have ultimately gone mm-hmm. to seven times eight? You know, like I always wondered about that. But I don't think that got it done. Because even if you went seven times eight, Dan, they that's knew that. 10 yeah. million less. That, that's 12 million less. That's 12 million less. That's still 12. I mean, hey, Bull would... Take a less to sign in Vancouver, maybe. Yep. Twelve million less is a lot less. <laughs> this is what I always talk about, right? We, we were like, okay, Bo. This is what made the Bo discussion so difficult. Bo's willing to take less, sure, but from what range are we talking about here? Is he willing to take two hundred, five hundred thousand less from yeah. seven to we, six? We and might a half? be talking like sixty-four million instead of sixty-eight. We're talking eight times eight. Like yeah. instead of him signing for eight and a half, like for him, he's like, yeah, I got eight and a half times eight from the Islanders. Yeah, I would have done eight times eight. That's. That that's that's what that would have been his discount to Vancouver, I think, which right? is believed to be the original offer the Islanders made before yes. upping to sixty-eight. Because he said, "What we're going to have Frank Saravalli on coming up in a bit, yeah." And he's been saying for a while that there was a team out there willing to offer him nine million per year in free agency. So nine times seven, how much is that? Sixty-three million in total money. Yeah. So if he knew he had sixty-three million waiting for him, no matter what, in free agency, the Islanders had to beat it, and they beat it by five million. 68 million. Yep. The Islanders paid more than what Bo was going to get in free agency to keep Bo. Bo wanted the biggest contract he could get. Hey, power and he got to it. him. And he got it. Power yep. to him. And, yep. and again, I think he would have taken a bit less to stay in Van. Yeah. But the range changed, you know? And when the Canucks realized even going to 56 isn't going to get it done, I don't think they bothered, bothered making him that contract offer because that's still 12 million less than what he got. And that still would have been 7 million less than what he knew he was getting in free agency. He could have gotten a higher average annual value in free agency, maybe. Less total money. But less total money. Again, we've been talking about this a lot. It comes down to total money. The he eighth year six, yes. is the hammer that the teams have to use to get that total money higher with a lower average annual value. Yeah, because he had to sign nine times seven. And yeah, you can make the point he would have been a free agent, but that's a $5 million difference. Even if Bo was going to sign a new contract at the end of seven years instead of eight, He's probably not getting five at the age of 36. You know what yep. I mean? He's probably not getting five million. So no matter how you slice it, the Islanders made him an offer. Nobody else is going to make him. They made him an offer he can't refuse. Exactly. We talk about that a lot. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'm not and I'm not even saying Bo um, is being disingenuous when he said this is a team I would sign with and you know he's on my list. I think sure. I mean it's New York, closer to home. I'm sure it's on the list. But I, I think it just came down to you gotta offer me more than, than what I know I'm getting in free agency for me to bypass free agency. Yeah. Show me how much you want me. Yeah, and that's what they did. <laughs> and they did. And, you know, it doesn't hurt your bargaining position when you know the team is already pot committed. Yeah. Right? Like, once Lou Lamorello makes the trade, Pat Morris, Bo Horvat's agent, knows, okay, we now have all the leverage in this negotiation. We can push it a little bit farther because we know he's not going to let Bo make it to free agency. They want to keep Bo. They made the trade for him. They're going to make sure that he's happy. And they did. And now Bo is an $8.5 million player with the New York Islanders. 
it, it it's a fascinating contract because Bo has not been and hey, I, I, I know a lot of people have different opinions on this of what Bo's comp was prior to this season, but I never saw it as somebody making seven and a half, eight million dollars. Towards the end of last year, before he got hurt, that's when he really started to score a little bit, and he got to the 31 goals, everything was going in for him, and that continued into this year. He really put a great offseason together and focused on honing in his best skills, and it worked out incredibly for him. But I never viewed Bo as an eight-plus million-dollar player. I was skeptical at those that thought Bo would be on a Olympic Canadian team, as was the suggestion last year before that all got shut down. It's not to say that Bo isn't a fantastic hockey player. It's just look at the numbers and show me where he matched up with a Thomas Hurdle or a Mika Zibanejad before this season, before this offensive breakout that we've seen Bo Horvat have. And it's not there. It's really just this season, Sat. So that's that's why I'm skeptical, and that's why you know, I think the Canucks were right to not want to go into these waters with Bo Horvat. But if you wanted to sign Bo, it, the time to sign him wasn't this year. And, you know, when we talked about this team had to make a decision on one of these players, it was the offseason. Yeah. That's when they had to make a decision on one, at least one of these but two But if players. he was asking for $56 million last offseason, like that, even that was a lot a lot of money well, for what Bo had provided. And I think that's that why point. they ended up signing JT. They knew that Bo's contract was going to be more than they wanted to, and they felt more comfortable paying JT a bit more than giving Bo that. But I think maybe you offered him $56 million, you probably would have said yes to it. Yeah. I don't think Bo would have said no. I mean, maybe even 53, Dan. Yeah. Like, I don't know if Bo would have said no in, in free agency to a contract over $50 million. Yeah, because the one that we've discussed was probably in the 40s uh, early in the last offseason. Yeah. So, I mean, if you really wanted to keep him, you probably could have kept him at a number less than what JT got. But I think even then for them, there was like, I don't know if we feel feel, feel comfortable doing that. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think the Canucks felt comfortable paying Bo... 53 to 56 million or something, you know, that range. I think they probably felt like, okay, maybe we have to be, be a, pay a bit more based on what he's done this year. But even so, to your point, at that stage, it completely blew out of the water. Uh, this, do you guys think the Canucks knew early? Bo wanted no less than 8x8, eight eight, thus them going with Miller, maybe viewed them both as equal and went with the better value. Not that they viewed them both as equal, but as Sat just mentioned the player they were more comfortable giving that sort of money to at the time. Not just because he was coming off a 99-point season, but he'd been a point-of-game player for the entirety of his Canucks career up until that point. I mean, hey, I even, I even said last year, I don't feel comfortable paying Bo Horvat a contract over $50 million total money. Mm-hmm. That if that's what we're looking at, make the trade. You know, yeah. like, that's what we're looking at. But hey, there's no doubt if the Canucks wanted Bo Horvat, they would have signed him. Like, if you wanted Bo Horvat signed to a long-term deal at a, at a relatively team-friendly number, they could have done that in the offseason. It still would have been more what, than what people thought, but based on how he played this year, it would have been seen as a big discount, right? Now, that's hindsight being 2020, but I think that was your opportunity. Like, that was the offseason. Yeah. You had to make a choice. They made their choice. Uh, last offseason. Few L's racking up for uh, for this management group over, over last offseason. But... Um... 
you know, still a lot of <laughs> a lot of decisions to make. And this trade deadline could be getting more interesting than we first thought, even beyond the Bo Horvat trade. Yeah, I mean, there's some stuff we'll talk about as the week goes on. We'll yeah. see how far this may go, what the Canucks were up to, and what are they really considering outside of the things that we've discussed so far. The one that's really catching or gaining steam is the Brock Besser situation. Yeah. It's interesting because we're going to talk to Frank Valley coming up in a few minutes. There are a handful of teams, Dan, who are very desperate for scoring. And there are teams that have real playoff aspirations. I believe uh, Brock's first impression as a rookie still looms large with some teams that could be looking for some added scoring at a potential discounted price, at least on the acquisition cost. Cap charge, still pretty big, and that's probably the biggest speed bump you have to overcome in any sort of deal for Brock Besser. We'll get to that with Frank Saravalli, who wrote about Brock today and his take on the massive deal Bo Horvat just signed. That's next on Canuck Central. Canuck Central in the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. This hour is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company, helping local business since 1892. Let's bring in our next guest. He joins us every Monday. He's our Monday hockey insider from the Daily Faceoff. It is Frank Saravalli. Thanks for this, Frank. How was... Uh, I was beautiful Florida over the weekend. I was good. This uh, this guy, even in the winter, I'm just not built for those temperatures and that humidity. It just is uh, no bueno for me. So you prefer like uh, All Star Game in Minnesota, or probably in Toronto next year when it'll be minus. Honestly, I know this sounds funny. I much prefer the cold to the heat. Oh wow, you're one of those guys. Okay, all right. I, I mean, when you're this big, like you kind of just. <laughs> Like it, just sweating all day is like it's not fun. Well, when it gets humid in Florida, it can be unbearable. I, well, I'm always, every place I go, I'm wearing a suit for the most part. <laughs> right. So like it's it's just miserable. Remember the draft in Dallas? It was so hot. Oh my! It was like, I, like it, it was a hazard walking from the hotel to the rink. Between I so I'm trying to think. I think that was 2018, was yes. it not? Yeah. So that was just following the cup final between Vegas and Washington. And like, I was legitimately nauseous the entire time I was in Vegas. And it wasn't because of the booze and gambling. It was because I just, it was 120 degrees, 43 degrees Celsius. Like it just, I I can't walk around in a suit all day. Like I just can't. Uh, So it's, I think there was maybe a little bit of sticker shock for a lot of people when the Bo Horvat deal was announced with the New York Islanders. $68 million for Bo. Uh, the first comment out of Lou Lamorello, uh, you know, I, I guess uh, throwing it back to the Ilya Kovalchuk contract, but uh, it was a little bit too long and a little bit too much money. But um, you know, is there a, a sense of sticker shock around the league on the Bo Horvat deal? I guess. I mean, I've been saying this for months. I mean, I, I think I said it with you guys mm-hmm. back in November. 
that there, I believe there was a team out there willing to pay Bo a, a number that started with a nine. Yeah. And I think some people thought I was crazy, but this is what more is than surprised. what he got than that, right? Eight and a half over eight is more than nine times seven. It's five. Million well, that's more. what I was just going to say is, is really what is perplexing to me about the deal is that the Islanders didn't leverage the eighth year properly. In my opinion, at least like, if you're if you're going eight years, you've got the ability to say, hey, the benefit of going eight is a more dollars in your pocket, total dollars, and B, for us, we can sort of manufacture a better AAV and get you what you would have gotten on the market. And it's beneficial for us. That's why they offer the eighth year for the team that has the players' rights. So the fact that they weren't able to do that and still paid eight and a half, maybe the way that they navigated or stick handled around it was, you know, probably thinking eight times eight uh, with no signing bonus. And the fact that this was essentially put in a position where you could really buy it out at some point, if you wanted to, that that's why it gets pushed up to eight and a half. But other than that, I'm, I guess I have a hard time understanding it because the Islanders paid every dime of what market value would have been, if not north of it. I think what it looks like to me, and I know Bo mentioned that, yes, it's a team that was on my list and I wanted to stay here. I think they, they essentially said, if you want us to forego free agency, you have to give us more than what we think we can get in free agency to sign here. That's, that's what it looks like or to me. Or at least what we think we could get. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, that's what Bo ends up getting, his first game with the Islanders. And good for him. Yeah. I, you I know mean, what? That guy, with all the drama surrounding that team this season, to hit a Grand Slam upper deck home run in this year in particular, like he deserves it. Uh, has a huge year and gets the huge contract uh, out of it. Now, you know, the focus here in Vancouver is shifting to what could be next. I know we, in, in our hits together, have talked a lot about Brock Besser. You wrote about him today at Daily Faceoff. Um, it, it looks and sounds as though um, th- there's a lot of motivation on both ends to see if there's a fit elsewhere. I think that's a really fair way to put it. I don't think anyone is like itching um, and or antsy, but I think both sides are in a position where, especially with what the Canucks have done over the last two weeks, adding basically $10 million in wingers with Kuzmenko's extension and now Beauvillier, you have to make money work you have to make money move on your wings you can't have that much money being spent there at that position particularly for guys that aren't play drivers and i think that's the real concern about the way the canucks books are currently structured and balanced is you you if you're going to spend huge money on play driving wingers and you could argue that uh, not to set off another hot button debate that jt miller is one um you know it, it needs to be properly balanced and it's not right now. So the Canucks have talked for, is it 13 months now that Jim Rutherford has been on the job mm-hmm. and about creating salary cap flexibility and they have none yet. You could argue that right now they're maybe worse off than they were 13 months ago cap wise. So they need to restructure, um, it's not going to be pretty at, at different times to get to where they want to get to and get that flexibility. And on the, the Besser camp end, they are, I think, eagerly awaiting a 
fresh start, a clean start somewhere else, given what Brock has been through. I think this injury this year with the hand going back to training camp has impacted him in a significant way and hasn't quite found himself. And I I do think there's a ton of talent there. You guys have seen it at Mm -hmm. varying points. Uh, Still being a 0.75 points per game guy this season uh, is not nothing, but you need Brock Besser scoring at a 25 goal pace, given the nature of his game as not a pure distributor, but more a pure shooter that, you know, in some ways that part of his game is one dimensional. So I did go through the entire and watched you know, untold hours of Brock Besser shifts this uh, in the last few days to prep for this, that that's sort of what teams would be looking at. So if I'm looking at teams that have the motivation to get something done here, are we should we just uh, look at teams that have had a hard time scoring goals or do we look at some teams that maybe like the New Jersey, New Jersey Devils, who, you know, you've mentioned, I know I have been linked to Besser in the past. Like, where do you kind of look at potential destinations and teams that would be the most motivated to do something here? It's not just teams that need goals. I think it's just teams that are in a position to win and have a need for a scoring winger. Again, not just goals, but offense in general. Uh, teams that need a push to either get into the playoffs or get over the hump once they get there. And I outlined seven of those potential fits. You mentioned New Jersey, the Rangers, Penguins, Flames, Caps, Wild, and Sabres are the others. And for varying levels and degrees of interest, I think. But where it really gets interesting for Bo, or sorry, for Brock, we're so used to talking about Bo. Geez, I don't know what I'm going to do anymore. (laughs) Um, But moving forward with Brock, um, it's I think he's sort of in a secondary waiting period or, or holding area until the rest of the winger market mm-hmm. can sort itself out. And the competition that Brock Besser has on the trade front is not just Timo Meyer from the Sharks, who's the big fish in the pond and now the number one guy at the top of our trade targets board replacing Bo, but it's also some pending UFA guys like would a team rather take a swing on James Van Riemsdyk for a third round pick who doesn't have the salary commitment of the next two years at six, six, five, um, are the Canucks willing to retain? That's a big question. How much do they value the salary cap freedom and flexibility versus the actual return? What's their priority and how eager are they to do it? Because, Not that I expected him to say anything other than, but when you read recent comments from Patrick Alvine, what you hear is that they're not, you know, they're not going to do it just to do it. And I think the funny thing is they're almost salary cap wise reaching that point where they're going to have to. Do teams still view Brock as as a big time goal scorer? It feels like the first impression he made as a rookie uh, still, still kind of looms large around the league. Well, See, I, I wrestled with that question myself, and I think the answer is yes. And I think part of it is because uh, there is fewer elements to his game, meaning I, I just touched on it. He's not really a facilitator. And I think when you look back on even the year that he had last year, you know, not an impressive goal total by any means. But he ranked in the top 30 in the league in shots attempted per game, shots from the slot, one-timers, and he was 14th in the league in expected goals. He's been a 
0.6%, I think, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. uh, shooter in his career. So, yeah, I think I think there's teams out there that are intrigued to see if they can unlock the potential that for a 25-year-old guy still exists, and especially given some of the off-ice things with his dad passing away. And it just feels like it's been a dark cloud over Besser's uh, tenure over these last number of years. So just see if they can shake it loose, shake him loose from that and, and rejuvenate his career. Um, do I think it's in there? Yes. I think the complicating factor is it's the two more years at six, six, five that no one really wants to be wrong on. Yeah. I, I think those, that's the biggest thing on him. Right. And, and, and you're, I get the same sense that, there are teams interested, but maybe as option B, and that's why it may take a little while longer here on the Besser thing to happen. Now, as far as something out of left field, and maybe not really out of left field, because as you know, Frank, in Vancouver, we've talked about trading everybody but Pedersen so far this year with uh, all the reporting coming out about perhaps even Quinn Hughes available for the right price, and that's obviously cooled off. Even Demko has been talked about. I wonder if there is a possibility that somebody makes a play for JT by the deadline. And, and I just wonder if there's a team out there that isn't afraid of signing somebody to an extension and depending how on how JT plays with Tockett and maybe has more success down the middle again, w- would you be surprised if we hear in the next five to six weeks before the deadline here or, you know, perhaps? Yeah, 25 days. 25 don't, come days. on, don't add no, any time I know. to this. We're I'm just thinking trying that, to get to the finish you line know, here, I, I, I was talking <laughs> uh, to, to my partner this morning about spring being six weeks away, so that's what I was thinking about. But yeah, de- deadline is, <laughs> is, is, is oh, it's only like three, three weeks away. But w- would it shock you that somebody tries to make a run here at JT? If it's six weeks away, I might keel over by the time <laughs> the deadline gets here. I'm not yeah. kidding. Um, would it shock me? No. Will it happen? I'd be really surprised. Um, it's, it's the contract. It's not the player. It's that I I understand where he was last season. And I, I, I know what he's done this year. It's almost like in an odd way, the Canucks seemed willing to pay for a statistical outlier season for JT Miller and then drew the line with Horvat this year that I think added to the, the rankle that everyone felt maybe even inside that dressing room and within Bo and his camp of like, well, why is it okay to overpay for one year, especially for an older player or a player that I should say is four years older than Bo? Why, why do that? And so I think when you, when you look at it, like there's maybe that question to answer and maybe we find the answer to it with Tockett as to the center and wing debate and put an end to it once and for all, hopefully uh, mercifully uh, in that case. And then after that, you know, what it, you know, can he get back to that same productivity level from last season when, you know, he was kind of doing something magical every other night with some kind of ridiculous end to end rush. Um, that's been missing this year and i don't know what the explanation or answer for it is other than that almost everyone's been off this year outside of petterson uh and for stretches of time so i just i have a hard time believing for a guy that will be 31 by the end of the first year of the deal that that 
is how it's going to play itself out where someone is willing to step up and take on that kind of term. I guess one of the the wonders everybody's kind of having is how deep does this go for the Canucks? Like how much have they reevaluated their position and how long they think it's going to take to turn this around? That's something I think that's still sort of up in the air about, you know, even when we think about the Demko rumors and things of that nature, it it feels like they're they're reevaluating a lot of what they have. It's an impossible question to answer because I don't think they know the answer themselves. Right. When is enough, you know, to carve out? And more to the point, what exactly is our goal? That's that's what's most troubling maybe about the messaging and the compare and contrast of Jim Rutherford's retool to Patrick Alvin's this is not a quick fix. And maybe that's why you're going to hear Jim Rutherford speak less to have a more uniform um, message that, that emanates from the front office. Cause I think that's really important, not just from a public facing standpoint, but also from an internal, you know, mantra and method to what they're trying to accomplish. It seems at times it's been disjointed and that needs to be fixed for the overall health of the franchise. And I think this organization is willing to do a lot of different things, right? And the one that seems most obvious is the Luke Shen one. Now, there is more discussion and talk around the market potentially that uh, with Rick Tockett coming in and him knowing Rick and Rick being a fan of his game, that perhaps there's a chance the Canucks end up extending Luke Shen I guess anything is possible. Well, what's your read on what's going to be happening here with the Canucks defenseman? I I think um, the far more likely scenario is that the Canucks are they cash in on you know the asset return for whatever they get for Luke Shen, whether that's a second round pick or a third round pick, whatever it might be. And then if they really are that interested to then just go back and bring him back in the summer that like, I I'd see that coming more likely than I see an extension at this point. Again, never say never. Um, but given where the Canucks are in the standings, why wouldn't you take the asset? Yeah, it's, it, it, it seems like, uh, when you have to do, and assuming, you know, there is at least a second or around a second round pick on the table for Luke Shen because every team can fit him in. He's the one player that everybody can fit into their their salary cap picture. It seems like a no brainer. Uh, but we'll see. The Canucks have surprised us a few times uh, yeah. in, in the past. Uh, Frank Saravalli, our guest. So uh, we get news of, of Mark Stone um, you know, needing surgery today. Bruce Cassidy says there could be an opportunity to see him return for the playoffs, and that has everybody wondering what could the Vegas Golden Knights do with that extra LTIR space. You know, they've, they've sort of been reeling going into the All-Star break, and their playoff positioning isn't as concrete as maybe it seemed it would be earlier in the year, Frank. What's Vegas up to this season? Well, they're going to be big game hunting. It's as simple as that. I mean, the like fact always, that, yeah. Yeah, there's a chance that he comes back for the playoffs is code word for a blinking green light for nine and a quarter million dollars to be spent before the March 3rd trade deadline. And more to the point, the Golden Knights would become the first ever team in NHL history, I believe, to exceed $100 million in actual cash spending. Uh, if that were to happen. So 
Um, it's really no shock in that sense. I reported earlier a few weeks ago that it was a back injury and that there was significant concern. Um, the fact that the Golden Knights believe he's going to make a full recovery, I think, is actually a win, regardless of when he comes back, because there was real concern internally, I believe, that his, you know, his career could be in jeopardy, now having a second back injury in as many seasons. Uh, those are hard to overcome. And in the short term, it means you can enter into the Patrick Kane sweepstakes. And I think a rental makes so much more sense for them than a long-term fit or someone with term because they're going to be back in cap hell next season, given what they've spent that, you know, someone like, I just see Kane as the perfect right wing fit. Um, you know, stone goes out, obviously doesn't play the same game as stone in terms of, uh, defensive impact and 200 foot game, but you know, cap hit wise acquisition cost, it's not going to be super exorbitant. And you're in a spot where you can add a three time Stanley cup winner who I think still has a, ma a lot of magic left in his game to, I don't know, play with another one of the great American born forwards, potentially when his career's over at the end of the day in Jack Eichel. So you put Kane and Eichel together and you make magic and off you go. One of the bigger players who could be on the market uh, is Dylan Larkin. And we see that uh, so far they haven't obviously reached an agreement between the Red Wings and Larkin. And we know that Eisenman obviously holds firm on what he believes is his best offer. But when we see Bo getting 68 million, eight and a half times eight, what does that do to the Larkin negotiation? And could he find himself really on the trade block? Uh, I think he could. Uh, look, Steve Eisenman is a stone cold killer. And I think everyone that's dealt with him understands that um, he's in a spot where he's played hardball to this point. I don't think things have gone sour, but I don't think it's exactly been friendly. Um, I think he's banking on the fact that Dylan Larkin has spent his entire life playing hockey in the state of Michigan. He's a Detroit kid who played, um, you know, at Michigan, played in the U S national development program in Ann Arbor, um, now has been with the wings through thick and thin of some really lean years and wants to be paid appropriately. And when you look at his offensive upside and ceiling, he's got to be the happiest guy, uh, in a second to only Bo Horvat after that deal was, was signed on Sunday saying, I've been close to a point per game guy for a number of years now, a 73 point campaign and a 76 game season, for instance. And he's close to knocking on that door again this year where it measures out to like a 78 to 80 point pace year in and year out. He's got the higher offensive upside and, and sample size than Bo to say, this is not a statistical one-off season. And I I've thought for a long time before Bo signed that Larkin was already one level higher mm -hmm. in terms of uh, an AAV that started with a nine for sure. And I think right now you can then take it back to the bank and say, here's another perfect market comparable nine and a half million bucks, please. And it's going to be a real battle of strength. I think for the Red Wings who are trying to, uh, manage their cap, given that they know they're going to have to place, pay some really significant young players in short order, that all of a sudden that cap money begins to get spent pretty quickly and you've got to hold the line. So will he 
ultimately at the end of the day force Larkin's hand and say, okay, sign it, or we're going to move on and trade you? I don't know, but, man, it's going to be interesting to watch over these next three weeks. Uh, Frank, it's it's not six weeks until the trade deadline, so you're okay, okay? Like 25 days, 25 days. <sighs> I've got the countdown going every day. <laughs> Deadline countdown on Daily Faceoff. If I need to write 49 more articles, I, I, I don't know what I would do with myself. <laughs> I mean, you get enough time to load up uh, the off-season trade list. So yeah. you have no. to do that. Please. Yeah. And th- what, what's next? Are you going to want a free agent ranking too or what? Probably, yeah. yeah. You guys are ruthless. <laughs> the, the content demands are high, all right? Thanks for this, Frank. There's, uh, these fingers, <laughs> these fat fingers can only type so fast. Appreciate the time as always, Frank. See you guys. Have a good night. Uh, there he is, Frank Saravalli, joining us. Uh, yeah, it's trade season, and with trade season comes uh, a lot of work uh, on, on the insider side of things. Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. I want to dive into a couple more of those things that Frank had mentioned Certainly on Brock Besser and uh, even on, uh, I guess, J.T. Miller as well, which uh, could be an interesting side of things as well for uh, for this. Uh, we'll get to some of your texts as well. Get more into the Canucks and New Jersey Devils, which are coming up pregame, officially beginning at 3.30. It's Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. You are listening to Canucks Central. Catch up on what happened in Vancouver sports with Halford and Bruff in the morning. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.